relevance of a program like YF, it is, um, I think, unparalleled. I think it is amazing. As I said, any program that can teach me to respect engineers is something that is, you know, uh, is doing an amazing job. And it's doing an amazing job precisely because it gives people a second chance. And, you know, there are very few second chances in the world we live in. And it gives people an intellectual second chance. You're listening to The Professor Will See You Now, the second season of the YF podcast. This season, we bring you exclusive conversations with YIF faculty about their journey, the discipline they teach, and the ideas that drive them. The Young India Fellowship is a one-of-a-kind year-long postgraduate diploma in liberal studies at Ashoka University. Ever since its inception a decade ago, the YIF has helped young individuals explore diverse areas of study and practice, discover their passions, switch career paths meaningfully, grow further as a working professional, create sustainable impact to solve problems at the core of our society. All of this while belonging to a global community of fellows. The first episode will feature Professor Madhavi Menon, who is a professor of English at Ashoka University and teaches the course Shakespeare and the World at the YIF. The episode will be hosted by Shiv B. Sharma, who is from the class of 2015 and is also a Fulbright and Inlax scholar. Hello, hi everyone. Welcome to the second season of the YIF podcast. My name is Shiv Sharma. I'm a YIF alum from the class of 2015. I'm very, very delighted to have Madhavi Menon in conversation with me today. Uh, thank you so much, Madhvi, for joining us. Um, uh, just to quickly introduce, Madhvi Menon is a professor of English at the Ashoka University and also the director of the Center for Studies in Gender and Sexuality at Ashoka. Thank you so much for joining. I'm so glad um, to be in conversation with you, given that I've actually worked with you for the last five years. Thanks, Shiv. It's, it's uh, lovely to be here. Although I, I must say, you know, I don't know who... Um, uh, who would sign on to, to listen to me? They must be already sick and tired of me and fed up of having heard me in class. But if you're here, then you're more uh, masochistic than I guessed after seeing you in class. So, <laughs> no, I, I think I'm sure everybody, because at least in my class, students keep talking about you and Professor Harris. So they're all excited to hear about your lives. And your class, Shiv, you remember, was not <laughs> the most, shall we say, was not the most successful <laughs> successful yep. class uh, at the YF, you poor things. That's true. Um, but we'll come to it later, I think. Okay, okay. Don't spill all your secrets right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, um, just to tell everyone, this conversation is really about Shiv and his secrets, not about me. <laughs> not, um, I mean, just to begin the conversation, I actually sort of wanted to just ask you how and when did you find your interest in literature? and also the interesting questions of gender and sexuality. And you know, how do they come together in your life, in your classes and the work that you do? You know, I have no answer to the question of when I first started getting interested in literature. Um, my mother was a professor of English. So maybe some part of that was just sort of imbibed it and absorbed it from what was around me. So there was always, and she did her PhD when we were, when my sister and I were, you know, quite young. And um, so, Already when I was, say, eight or nine years old, 
um, I had a sense of what it meant to do a PhD in English, what it meant to teach, right. what it meant to be surrounded by books and to be reading all the time. Um, my, for my mother, of course, you know, she was an she was an only is an only child, and so she grew up just surrounded by books. That was her, you know, all her siblings, and so I think it was just something that I always thought I would do and would study. There was a point in my life where I wanted to be the prime minister. If only I had stuck with that, then we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. Um, there was another point at which I wanted to be a lawyer. That may still happen because I'm so fascinated by the law. Uh, but I think fairly early on, I was quite convinced that um, English is what I wanted to study. I was even quite clear uh, that Shakespeare is what I wanted to study. And again, I have no memory of how or when that happened, but just that I was quite sure I wanted to do that. We had no word for queerness or queer theory or even sexuality. I mean, there, there was not a word that existed, um, not only because of the sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink factor, Right. Uh, but also because it was, you know, never taught and never, um, never sort of discussed necessarily. Uh, my mother's work had nothing to do with with this. So, I mean, that was not something that, uh, you know, that I grew up with. It was not something that came automatically to me in the air that I breathed. Um, but I do remember, and uh, I don't actually keep artifacts or souvenirs or anything, but my parents found this a few years ago. Um, I was at age 10, I think, I was editor of the Colony newsletter. I don't even know if it was the Colony newsletter or just our road, you know. I think that was <laughs> that was the ambit of our ambitions. So the uh, activist on you were all, was already coming out by the age of 10. I guess so. So I was editor of this Colony newsletter. And my first editorial, the headline was, Boys, colon, something needs to be done. So <laughs> I don't... <laughs> So I think from an early, early age, I certainly recognized that gender played a big, big part in the world around me. Okay. And again, not necessarily personally, because I think my parents were quite wonderful on that front. And I had a sister, so it was not like, you know, there was a boy to be favored or anything of the kind. But clearly, I, I was attuned to what was going on around me in the world. And so early on, I had a sort of critique of gender. And I think that automatically on its own rolled over into questions of sexuality uh, when right. I was later on in school and college. I mean, there are so many things I want to ask on already what you said. Yeah. Uh, you said, I mean, I know that you already said that you don't know how and when you started getting into Shakespeare. Yeah. But maybe you want to talk about, I mean, you teach a course at the Wire, which is called the Shakespeare and the World. Yeah. Why interest in Shakespeare, but also why that course, given the kind of audience YF is? What, what motivates you to teach Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean, I think precisely because of the audience that YF is. I mean, I must say, just to backtrack a little bit and go on a tangent, the reason I joined Ashoka was because of the YF. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, I was, both Gil and I were here on sabbatical for a year in 2011. And uh, you know how Delhi can be a village of 200 people. So somebody told somebody told somebody that we were looking to move back to India. And the last somebody I think turned out to be Pramath. And so Pramath called us up and said, you know, we have, we're starting this university. It's not built yet or anything, but we have this program called the Young India Fellowship. So why don't you come and give a talk to the Young India Fellows? And this was the first batch. Right. And um, so Gil went and gave a talk and said, oh my God, I'm completely blown away by these fellows and by this entire setup. And so I was a bit skeptical. I said, you know, whatever, we'll see. 
And then I went and did a talk and I don't even remember what it was, but it was enthralling. The entire scenario and situation was enthralling. The number of questions, the amount of interest. Um, and I think that was when to borrow the title of the Peter Sellers movie, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I think that's when how I, that's the time I learned to stop being too suspicious of engineers because <laughs> it's like, my God, these people are really good students. Yeah. And I think the um, discipline that engineers bring with them as students really stands the fellows in good stead. And obviously they have come to the fellowship because they want to study different things and hear different things. So I think on both fronts, uh, the very demographic um, consistency of the YF is what attracted me to it. Um, and so then, you know, then of course, you know, what to teach. And I remember we used to have long chats with Anunay about it. Um, and, um, and, and the idea was, you know, most fellows would probably not have had much exposure to Shakespeare at all. Um, and this is something that they should have. But, you know, the entire sort of um, thinking around Ashoka University, um, and Gil and I were the sort of first faculty to be hired. And the, so we were very involved with those conversations. And the entire thinking around Ashoka University was that we have to make sure that we do not forget our location. And so because we are located in India, uh, even though we're trying to do a university and a pedagogy more along the lines of a liberal arts university in the United States, we cannot forget our location in India. And so we wanted to talk about Shakespeare, the sort of bastion, the vanguard of Western literature, but wanted to do it in a way that actually acknowledged his relation to the rest of the world. And so that's how the title Shakespeare and the World uh, came about. And of course, you know, as you know, our um, structure is always the same, even though the contents can change. Uh, each of us does one play and adaptations of that play from around the world, uh, feeding into the fellow's final project, which is their own adaptations, many of which are just fantastic. And this year, by the way, uh, just a shout out to the current YF. They, you know, we did the entire thing on Zoom and... Uh, their present, their adaptations, their presentations were marvelous. So it just goes to show that that's an idea that endures, and I'm really grateful for that. No, I think even I remember. I think at the one of the courses that I still have vivid memories of from the YF is Shakespeare and the World, and how you know the entire perspective of looking at Bollywood changed because we were watching critically thinking about films like Omkara film yeah. and sort of other films, which was great. I mean, something that you've already sort of mentioned here, and I want to pick up on it because I think it really is pertinent to the YF, right? Because I think you, your work herself, as I know it, has moved into multiple disciplines, crossing one disciplinary boundaries. Now you're working on law. Uh, your last book was really about history in, uh, in many ways. So I'm just sort of, I wanted to ask you, um, could you tell us a little bit about these movements across the field and sort of how do you find these connections? Um, you know, and maybe with that, about your current interests too. Yeah. Shiv, again, this is a question I think I'll be bad at because for me, it really doesn't feel like movements across. I mean, for me, and you know, I say this all the time to my students, you've heard me say this so many times. For me, what you have to be interested in is an idea. And a set of ideas, question, a set of questions. And then you chase that idea wherever it takes you. You chase those questions wherever it takes you. And then, you know, that, that chase, that, that pursuit 
might take you across what get recognized as disciplinary boundaries but actually are not what necessarily make themselves aware to you in that form right. so it was not so when i was you know to go back to infinite variety a history of desire in india which was my most recent book when my editor told me asked me to write something like that and he he got in touch with me after reading some of my op-eds and newspaper pieces and said you know i really want you to do this i was quite flummoxed because i am not a scholar of india i'm not a scholar of indian history or philosophy or religion or anything of the kind or even literature um and so i you know i had no idea how to write that book and the only way i could write it was really thinking as a queer theorist which is what i'm trained to do and so my my thinking around that book was how do i take the major ideas that animate debates in queer theory today and think about finding pegs in the vast landscapes of the indic civilizations on which to hang them so the focus was always the idea the focus was always the question and so even though i had you know 20 different really short chapters each chapter had an argument that was an argument from queer theory and so similarly the uh, book that i'm um, working on now and i you know i sort of just finished the manuscript for it called the law of desire um i'm not trained in the law i'm not and uh, but i sort of joke saying i seem to specialize in writing about things i'm not trained in or trained to do <laughs> or that i should which not which is the fun of it right which is part of the fun you know even when i went to the us to do my phd there was a lot of, not a lot but there was some surprise that i would want to work on shakespeare because of course you know the idea is if indians go and do a phd then they should work on indian stuff and that had frankly never even occurred to me so i think i've specialized in always working on things that are not expected of me to work on so the law of desire for instance it's not written from the perspective of a lawyer it's again written from the perspective of a queer theorist right what is it about laws and judgments that have a bearing on how we think about desire how we think about sexuality how we think about gender how these feed into multiple other fields um and so again for me what straddles these fields is the question yeah. the fields themselves to me don't feel disparate or discrete i mean that's that's great uh, madhvi because i know that when i was reading infinite variety this is really the sort of brilliance uh, brilliance about the book that you actually don't even use the word queer theory so much in the book but when one is reading and if one is familiar with queer theory they can start making those connections and i think this is this is what my experience of shakespeare in the world was too where you really didn't see shakespeare as a western sort of literary figure anymore when we were in that course yeah but i mean speaking of ideas i i am also just curious because you also mentioned that you were surrounded by books when you were growing up and i know that you also teach a course called the great books um, at ashoka for the undergraduates but you know if, if for our, for our audience you would like to mention a few books authors ideas that that have you, that have stayed with you throughout your journey as an intellectual as a professor would love to hear about that okay um I, again this is uh, shivya <laughs> asking me all the questions that i'm terrible at responding to i you know someone says well who's your favorite author it's like blank this is a complete yeah. you know blank page i have no clue or idea i mean clearly um you know shakespeare figures way up there for me uh any kind of sort of theoretical text figures way up there for me i'm sort of weird that way if i need to calm down and feel good about things i like to read theory um and you know all, all kinds all kinds of theory 
but i've uh, but you know the dirty secret of professors is that we simply do not read as much as we used to when we were grad students and you know let this be a lesson to all of you still in graduate school or aspiring to be in graduate school this is your time to read because once you start working uh, it becomes very very hard in fact there's this joke about uh this famous professor in the uk called jacqueline rose she's a you know a queer theorist a psychoanalytical theorist and apparently she was asked one day whether she had read a particular book and she said read it i haven't even taught it so this idea that <laughs> you actually only end up reading the books that you're teaching otherwise it's you know space and time for reading is simply not there but i will say this semester has been crazy 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 for a million reasons and you know i won't go into all of them but just in relation to reading you know i was teaching an overload it was madness on zoom and so there was you know there were three classes that i was responsible for plus i was on the jury for the tata lit fest fiction prize and so i had to read about um 50 55 novels um in the course of about two and a half months so wow. it was uh, it was it yeah as i said it was a crazy semester <laughs> right. so i read i read 55 novels this semester so you know i can i can tell you that um and the and i would highly recommend for instance the one that uh, won the uh, won the award which is annie zedi's book prelude to a riot and it's a very very brief book and one of the interesting things about being on this jury for the fiction prize is that at least i think a good 75% of the books to go back to the earlier question that we were just talking about a good 3 quarters of the books were actually about the state of india today and about the state of sort of simmering tension and any zedi's book was particularly good because nothing happens in the book but it's just the sense of capturing that simmering boiling volcano the lava that's you know about to erupt that erupts in little spurts and that's about to erupt and so that was wonderful um the other thing that i love reading is uh and that too i've been reading a little bit of this semester is actually you know thrillers thrillers are my are my poison but my latest love is japanese thrillers i just absolutely love them and so i just finished um something called the honjin murders by uh yokomizo seishi yokomizo and you know that was great but one japanese novel that i will recommend it's not a thriller at all it's actually you know uh it's by this guy called junichiro tanizaki who's often been uh described as the japanese jane austen and i think that's not quite right but it just gives you a sense mm-hmm. and he has this amazing novel called the makioka sisters and that i would just recommend highly highly to anybody um so you know you just got to read what gives you pleasure and um this semester that's what give, what has given me pleasure and generally in life uh you know there there's too many things too many books that have given me pleasure for me to list them i mean just want to change gears a little bit because i know we've been talking about your role as a professor at ashoka i'm also just interested in hearing about your role as a director of the csgs the center for studies mm-hmm. in gender and sexuality what got you interested in the project in the first place and if at all you know if what what have you found exciting about working at the csgs shiv i am glaring at you right now just remember i this is me glaring at you because you know very very well that if you had not been born on this earth 
there would be no CSGS and I would certainly not be directing it. So I blame you and your fellow ELM teammates fully for this. Um, and for those of you who don't know the CSGS that Ashoka was born as an ELM project, this is why I've been suspicious of the ELM ever since then, uh, <laughs> because it gives rise to <laughs> gives rise to such consequences. Um, and as you know, you know, you guys came up with the with the blueprint for it. Um, it's not, it's not, I must say, it's not something, it's something that I have mixed feelings about. Because on the one hand, I think it is very, very, very important to have a center like this. Um, as you know, we are, you know, the first, perhaps still the only center that actually uses the word sexuality in its title. And, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when I grew up, when I was growing up, that word simply didn't exist. So, you know, didn't even hear of it. Whereas hopefully now students going to school, students going to college will at least know there is a center for studies in gender and sexuality. So even in even for that limited purpose, I think it's so important to have a center like this. Um, and to that extent, I'm extremely proud and honored and delighted to be associated with it. I think the center has also done some exceptionally wonderful work. We've got wonderful speakers, uh, had fabulous programming. Um, you know, our most recent uh, Summer of Ishq series was, was amazing, I thought. And so we really are generating a lot of material for a lot of people to access, which again, I think we've come up with workshops. I mean, all that fabulous work. Um, I feel a bit torn because I am not an administrator. I don't like doing it. I am extremely efficient, but I'm not an administrator. And when I took it on, I thought at most it'll be a year or two that I have to do it uh, before handing it over to, you know, some other <laughs> sucker who comes along and says, oh, what is this? Sure, I'll walk into it. And then I shut the door and say, fine, now you cannot escape. And no other sucker has come along. So I have remained the sucker <laughs> For what is it, six years, uh, five years? Yeah. And so that has been uh, exhausting. And, you know, especially this semester, I guess, with everything else going on, uh, it's felt like a lot of work. So just put, to put the word out there, I'm still looking for the sucker, next sucker to come, <laughs> the next professor to join, who will uh, take over as director of CSGS. This is, again, sort of going back to some of the things that you said earlier, too. But, you know, you've taught both in the US context and in India. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're, we were talking a lot about sort of specificities of writing sort of and doing the work that you've done in India. I'm just curious, what, what are the differences or similarities or, you know, how was your work in the US? Um, and, you know, how was it to study and teach in the US for you? How did that locational cultural setting impact, if at all, your intellectual professional journey? And what do you see sort of what's happening now versus how it was in the US when you were teaching that? It's a difficult question because uh, I certainly was not doing the kind of writing then as I'm doing now. Uh, but that's also not that's also not necessarily location, but also a stage of career or stage of, you know, where you are in life. So almost all the writing that I did in the US was academic, not almost all, all my writing in the US was academic writing uh, because I was going through the tenure system um, and I was, you know, going through the sort of ranks from assistant to associate to full professor. And so I had to, I had to write. But when I say I had to, I must sort of um, qualify that because I actually never write because I have to. I always write because I want to. And uh, so I was very happy doing the kind of writing I was. But as I said earlier, in the US, it's, it's very clearly defined and very strictly defined. And if you're doing academic writing, then that's what you're doing. 
you're not doing any kind of crossover writing. So I was, um, you know, I did a couple of things for Indian newspapers when I was still there, but otherwise all my writing was academic writing. Um, so, you know, all three of the books that I wrote, all um, three, yeah, all three of the books I wrote, the book I edited, Shakespeare, which was just, you know, so much fun. Um, all of that I wrote as academic books published by academic uh, publishing, you know, university publishing um, houses. And so that was a very different genre of writing. I don't think my questions were different. I don't think right. my analyses were different, but I certainly think my mode of writing was different. But I've always been, so the mode of writing I'm doing now is I think the mode that I'm happiest with because it's a mode of, uh, that comes closest to my teaching as well. And, and you, know, you know, we were talking about yeah. this earlier. Um, I'm very deeply invested in thinking about complex ideas. I don't suffer fools gladly. I don't like unrigorous thinking. I don't like lazy thinking. So I'm very, very deeply invested in complex ideas, but I'm not necessarily invested in their appearing uh, insurmountable. I'm not interested in their sort of being so frightening and scary that people simply don't engage with them. So I'm interested in writing about complex ways, uh, complex ideas in ways that are not necessarily that complex. And so the two my last two books, uh, Infinite Variety and Law of Desire, are what are known as crossover books. And by crossover books, what the publishing industry means is that it can it should be accessible to anybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm a really firm believer in that kind of writing because I don't think, I think anyone is capable of complex thinking if they train themselves to doing it. And that's what I and that's what I'm interested in doing right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you so much for saying that because I think that's what I've really loved and enjoyed about your sort of the latest book. But also, mm -hmm. I think the Shakespeare and the world in that sense, that was my first introduction to theory, actually, yeah. while we were not actually using any theoretical terms per se. So I'm just curious also to hear again to go back to your uh, why, of course, a little, little bit about the final project. And do you think, you know, you've been able to see over that over years that actual outcome in terms of what students were able to produce, you know, in terms of engaging with the ideas? Right. And I think that too is sort of unique to the YF. And I am a big believer in this now, this idea of, um, of course, and as you know, since you're a, a writing preceptor at the YF, of course, Indian students in general need to learn how to write. Most of us went through college and even those of us who studied English in college went through college without really writing an essay of any substantial length. Right. So Indian students in general do not know how to write. And so learning how to write is absolutely crucial on the one hand, and I completely stand by that. On the other hand though, is writing an essay the only or the best way to provoke an engagement in a six week uh, or out of a six week English class? And that was the big challenge that both Gil and I faced. And I think we were fairly clear early on that we did not want regular academic essays because this was not that kind of setting. And this was not the space in which we could teach students how to write. Our brief, and this is my brief in every class, is how to teach students how to think. And as you know, it is a sort of symbiotic relationship. Unless you're able to think clearly, you're not able to write clearly. And so we thought, let's just sort of focus on this, on one aspect of it. And I think the, pro the student projects, the reimaginings of Shakespeare are just brilliant. I mean, they are really brilliant. Obviously, there will always be 
you know, a few that could have gone further, a few that could have been pushed more, but that is true of any place right. of any assignment. But as a framework, I, I just think it is amazing. It allows people to bring their strengths to the fore, whether that's, you know, singing or dancing or acting or writing or, um, you know, art or whatever it is, it allows them again, to take a question or a text and think across multiple fields. And really, that's the only way to think. You cannot think narrowly. You have to think widely. And the projects are, are I, I think, amazing. Um, you know, the, fe the festival has just sort of got longer and longer and longer, the more <laughs> fellows that we have. And you're planning to do it in person too, perhaps, if we go back to campus. Absolutely. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, absolutely. What kind of films do you like? And do you think film is an interesting form to think about queer theory? Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are all great questions. I love film. I love teaching it. Again, I'm not, a, I'm not trained as a film theorist, though. <laughs> I'm not trained in film studies at all. So when I teach film, it's not necessarily from the uh, um, film studies perspective. Uh, so, you know, camera angles and all that, my knowledge is extremely rudimentary. I'm interested in film as yet another text uh, for thinking about the questions I'm interested in. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm interested in films that think about sexuality, that think about sex, that think about gender, that think about you know this kind of sort of politics. Um, having said that, yes, the form of cinema is also very, very interesting. What it does and does not allow you to do in some ways, cinema is more controlling than a book because it sort of, you know, with its editing sequences, it sort of, tells you where to look, it shows you what it wants to show you. But that only makes it more challenging to actually be able to look and see uh, things that they may not be, it may not explicitly be showing you, in which case it becomes much more like a book. Um, for Shakespeare and the World, you remember, depending on whether I teach Othello or Romeo and Juliet, um, I teach, you know, two of my favorite films, Omkara for Othello and uh, Ramlila for uh, Romeo and Juliet. And actually, I've taught Ishak Zadeh as well for Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And I've also taught Arshinagar, which is, I think, an amazing film. Um, but as you know, Shiv, uh, you know, we have a shared love of Bollywood, uh, which I think too many people write off. I think Bollywood is a rich, rich repository yeah. uh, for anybody interested in thinking about sexuality for anybody think, interested in thinking about uh, political syncretism, for anyone interested in thinking about ideas that, ide that India has been animated by. Um, and so, you know, so I'm, I'm very interested in Bollywood. Uh, and so that's why the films I teach in Shakespeare and the World tend to be from Bollywood. Uh, but I'm, you know, globally, I'm not a huge fan of Hollywood, especially not now. Um, but globally, you know, I'm very interested in there are lots of interesting uh, directors and producers. I'm very interested in Pedro Almodovar. I'm very interested in Michael Haneke films, in Hitchcock films. Um, the, the, one of the films I saw recently, a French film called Q, which is translated as Cuties. I think it's on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Again, I'd recommend that to everybody. If you want to feel uncomfortable, go for it. Uh, it's a really fabulous film. Where does Shakespeare and his writing stand today in the contemporary society? And maybe that could be one way for you to talk about how you try to do that within your course to acquire. Yeah. I mean, th this question actually, I mean, I've always had to think about it because, you know, all my earlier books were on Shakespeare. But I think I had to think about it most fully uh, when I was working on my edited volume, Shakespeare, uh, which is subtitled A Queer Companion to the Complete Works of Shakespeare. 
Um, and the reason I had to think about it then most fully is because precisely this, right? Because this question of, well, where is Shakespeare? Who is Shakespeare today? Where does he stand? Where do his works stand? Uh, can be used almost dismissively. It's like, you know, we really yeah. don't need Shakespeare right now. Why are we still thinking about Shakespeare? Um, but the way in which I sort of entered that conversation was to say that Shakespeare has become so deeply ingrained in our ways of thinking that we don't even know that, for instance, a good, a sizable chunk of our vocabulary, both conceptually and linguistically, is Shakespearean. And so for me, what was interesting while doing Shakespeare was just to try and become a little more self-aware of what is Shakespearean about our lives today. Mm. And I say this also in, as you remember, Shiv, in my first class, every time to Shakespeare in the world, I always tell the fellows, the only reason to study Shakespeare is in order to see the resonances with our time and age as well. And soon, uh, shockingly, not so shockingly, um, we find that really most of the pressing questions of our time have already been thought about in some way, shape or form by Shakespeare. And so again, to go back to my earlier point about needing to have conversations, Shakespeare is a brilliant conversationalist. So whether you want to talk about sexuality, whether you want to talk about gender, whether you want to talk about communalism, whether you want to talk about history, whether you want to talk about politics, whether you want to talk about uh, drag, whether you want to talk about anything, um, Shakespeare has talked about it. And many of his ideas, many of the ideas from his poems and plays are what have already come down to us. We just don't know that they're Shakespearean. So in many ways, Shakespeare continues to play for you know reasons that aren't always great, but continues to play a really pivotal role in how we think about the world around us. Last question to you, which is, can you just talk a little bit about what you see as the relevance of a program like YF? Um, and you know, where do you see this program going in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, relevance of a program like YF, it is, um, I think, unparalleled. I think it is amazing. As I said, any program that can teach me to respect engineers is something that is, you know, uh, is doing an amazing job. And it's doing an amazing job precisely because it gives people a second chance. And, you know, the very few second chances in the world we live in. And it gives people an intellectual second chance, um, which again is very rare. And because of the MLS, which as you know, is the second add-on year to the YF, which you can add if you'd like, it really provides a turnstile to changing your entire academic trajectory, mm -hmm. your entire academic course. And we've had so many hugely successful um, MLS uh, students as well. So for me, the beauty of the YF lies precisely in its variety. People coming from so many different backgrounds, so many different places, so many different parts of the country, so many different um, languages. And that strength, frankly, is exactly what translates into the fabulous end, end products for Shakespeare and the world. Because you have such a melange, such a mix of people and languages and backgrounds and ideas, you get all these extremely rich reimaginings and projects. And I, I think YF should be the template for how education should be. Come to us, whoever you are, from wherever you are, and figure out um, what it means to think. Figure out what it means to engage with the world around you. And alas, the sort of Indian education system, as you and I both know, provides too little oxygen for that kind of 
um, thinking, provides too little space for that kind of uh, progress. And so, you know, if you want to breathe, despite Delhi's polluted air, come to the wire. Thank you so much. I think this is a very convincing sort of reason, set of reasons that you've provided us. And with that, I'd again like to thank you so much, so much for this wonderful conversation tonight. Thank you, Shiv. You're a wonderful interlocutor as always. And as you know, I would not be, you know, in many of the places at Ashoka if it weren't for you. So thank you for everything. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Professor Will See You Now, the second season of The Wire podcast. Tune in to the next episode for another exciting conversation with Professor A.K. Shivkumar, who did his PhD from Harvard University and teaches the course Economics and Public Policy at the YIF. Follow us on Instagram at Young India Fellowship to stay updated about our admissions, events, and engagements. You can also check out our channel on YouTube for video editions of the YIF podcast.